0: This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, are you ready to study God's Word together this morning? Then turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a real live people who were living in a real live place called Ephesus. It was a major city in the Greco-Roman world. And there was a church that had started there through Paul's missionary journeys. And it with, along with his companions. And Paul is writing back to the church. And encouraging them in their faith. And recounting, just the, significant, recounting the significance of what Christ had done inside of them. In verse one, chapter 1, there's just a lot of thanksgivings over what Christ has done for them. And in chapter 2, he goes a little more specific in recounting exactly what Jesus had done. And so I want to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians this morning. And he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world This is a theologically rich chapter of Scripture. As a matter of fact, you could could do a 45-minute sermon almost on every verse. So, let's get comfortable. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I say that to say that we can't exhaust this passage today. But I'm going to do my best to um, work it out in a way that we really get the gist of what the Bible is telling us here this morning um, few matters of contemporary life consume us in the West more than the issue of identity. And I like the way Timothy Keller defines identity. He describes it as a sense of worth or your sense of self, a durable core. That's a key phrase for him, a durable core. You identify yourself through in all the other categories of life. It's what identifies you as you through all those categories. So in that light, I want you this morning to quietly consider this question as we get started in the text. If someone asked you to define your identity, how would you answer them? In other words, what is that durable core that defines who you are? What is that durable core that identifies you as you through all the other categories of your life? Our human experience here on earth offers any number of options to serve as that durable core. So for some of you, you might say that your race defines you or maybe it's your nationality. Others might say their gender or sexuality grounds their identity. Still others might be tempted to be defined by your job, your politics, your major, your romance, your marital status, even your parenting or parenting style. And and the reality is there are countless categories and stations of life we might mistakenly choose To ultimately define us. But when we we do define ourselves by those life stations, we experience what author Hannah Anderson calls identity myopia. We define ourselves by the categories that we see most closely to us without seeing the bigger picture of life. But those smaller categories do not make sense if you don't know what they're ultimately for. I submit to you this morning that it is Jesus Christ and his gospel that define who you really are. It is Jesus who ultimately explains what all the other areas of life are for. And it is Jesus who grounds your identity in his gospel so that you have a durable core, a measuring rod by which to contrast any competing identity claim. And when you know who you ultimately are in Jesus' gospel, He then wants to guard you from making something else more ultimate than it is. And that brings us back to this morning's passage. In Ephesians 2, Paul reminded the early church at Ephesus about the significance of Jesus' gospel work in their lives. And Jesus' gospel work in their lives, their their faith in the gospel, this wasn't simply a drive-by encounter for them. This wasn't just simply something that they started to believe in. It's not just that they added a spiritual side to themselves. Paul talks talks about this in much bigger ways, far more significant ways, far more transformative ways. And so in this passage this morning, in light of our sermon series, we're going to see another thread. Another core value that we hold dear here at Mill City Church. And is that God desires to save you through Jesus Christ and through him to literally give you a new identity. A new durable core a durable core through which we view all other categories of life. And so pick up your notes, that your listing guide that you should see and your worship guides as you walk through the door today. And you follow along with me. You'll see a lot of blanks today. I'm going to go through some of this pretty quickly. But you follow along with me as I make our way through the text today to see some foundational truths of our gospel identity here's number one we are far more desperate than we ever thought we spend so much of our lives glossing over our less than desirable traits And we actually spend a lot of money and do our level best to ensure people only see what we want them to see, right? Therefore, we might convince ourselves and others even that we really aren't that bad off. Sure, we might need some tweaking here or there, but but we really are really good people. But the biblical writers give a different diagnosis. In today's text, when you look at verses 1 through 3, Paul shows us that we are far more desperate than we ever thought. I want you to see how he describes your spiritual condition. And I think he does this in at least three ways. Number one, we are spiritually dead. He says that in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once were. Walks. He, you go on down, and he says it again at the end of verses 1 through 3. And this death is what the reformer John Calvin noted, that this is a real and present death. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now this is noteworthy. It's noteworthy because we don't normally think of ourselves this way, right? I mean, when thinking about ourselves spiritually, we might simply think that we just need a religious part of me, just like I need physical exercise, or I need a healthy diet, or I need some vitamins. And even in our most dire metaphors of our spiritual condition, a preacher might describe our state, As drowning in the middle of the ocean, and Jesus, right at the right time, came to throw us a life preserver to save us from our impending doom. I know because early on in my ministry, when I was younger, I used that analogy. But it's a bad analogy because it's not how the text describes our spiritual condition. We're not drowning in the ocean of our sin. Spiritually speaking, we're a carcass that has washed ashore. Thus, the gospel isn't a life preserver for the drowning, it's a stretcher for the dead. We don't need to be rescued, we need to be resuscitated. I'm not sure if anyone's heard of the show, The Walking Dead. I don't necessarily endorse it, but it's there, and I'm sure... Some people have watched it, and I don't know if you need me to tell you this today, but there is no such thing as real, live, physical zombies. Maybe that's a note you want to write in your notes, and maybe around the lunch table, you can say, well, I learned today that there are no such things as real, live zombies. Well, kind of. See, I believe the Bible is teaching us here that there there are zombies. They're just simply spiritual zombies. Because every one of us is spiritually dead. Every one of us has that spiritual aspect of our lives that just simply is not alive. The Bible says that we are dead. So when you walk around on planet Earth today, tomorrow, and you look around you're going to see a lot of dead people. They just don't know they're dead. That's another movie, by the way, in the late ni- 1990s. Some of you may remember that. You see, here's the reality. People, we look really good on the outside. All of our vitals seem to be well Our hearts have rhythm. There's breath in our lungs. There are smiles and glows on our faces. Sometimes all of our parts, they seem to work at least well enough to get us to to, to wake up the next morning. So physically, we seem to be great. And so we convince ourselves that really our condition isn't all that bad. But Paul says, no matter what things might look like on the outside, inside, There is spiritual decay that is taking place. You are spiritually dead. Secondly, in our spiritual condition, Paul says that we are morally bankrupt. We are morally bankrupt. Verse 3 says that we once walked in the passions of the flesh. The flesh is a biblical word to refer to our entire bent away from God and toward the sinful desires of our hearts. We are morally bankrupt. Now, sure, none of us is as bad as we could be, but none of us is as good as we think we are. And most importantly, where it counts the most, none of us compares to God's perfect standard. The St. Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, he expounds upon our moral deficiency. He writes, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And what the biblical writer is doing here is placing all of us human beings on the same level spiritual ground, regardless of our rearing, regardless of our spiritual heritage. Now, here's the reality. Sure, you you can always identify another human being that you might score just a little bit higher than they that your life might look a little more like God would want than the next person. We can look great if we just simply compare ourselves laterally. But the ultimate standard is not your neighbor. Your ultimate standard is not Adolf Hitler. It's not the pedophile down the street. The ultimate standard is God himself. And the Bible says when any one of us human beings is compared next to him, every one of us is found wanting. The Bible says that we are morally bankrupt. Now, let me just say very quickly, this is an aside. That does not mean that you can never do anything that, is morally beneficial. Even a complete non-believer can help someone. What it means is that there is no human being in and of herself, in and of himself, that meets God's perfect standard and not a single one of us can ever do enough works in order to please God, in order to be righteous in his sight, in order to be reconciled, to him. Therefore, we're morally bankrupt. So we are spiritually dead. We are morally bankrupt. And thirdly, we are relationally orphaned. Paul also calls us children of wrath. Some of you new parents might be saying, yeah, I got one of those at home. (laughs) That's not what he's talking about. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a child of wrath? Well, it's a difficult concept to grasp. And I'm going to be honest with you pastorally. It's a difficult truth to hear. And it's a difficult truth for me to even say or talk about. And I don't, I don't highlight this point this morning in a gleeful way. I don't highlight it in a flippant way. But it's what God says teaches us. And and in sharing it with you this morning, I share it with you soberly because it's the sober reality. When Paul mentions the word wrath here, he references the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is his just and holy anger or wrath against sin and against sinners and so by calling us children of wrath paul is saying that left to ourselves just in our natural state we every human being is ultimately an object of god's wrath because of our sin and friend that is ultimately the dilemma of every human heart is how do i get that wrath directed elsewhere how do I get it directed away from me and Paul in pointing this out he's actually echoing Jesus's words that came just after Jesus's most famous verse ever John three sixteen. just a little bit further down in the chapter in John chapter 3 verse 36 Jesus said whoever believes in the son has eternal life Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Here it is. But the wrath of God remains on him. Did you see that? The wrath of God remains, Jesus says, on the one who does not believe Jesus' gospel. Now, let's do a little bit of deductive reasoning in this room. Whether you are a Christ follower today or you are not a Christ follower today, has there been a time in your life where you did not believe and you did not obey the Son of God? Everyone should be doing this, right? So that means that every one of us fit the description of Jesus' verse. Now, let's go further with our deductive reasoning. If the wrath of God, Jesus says, remains on the one who does not believe, that means that the wrath of God was there to begin with. Because it had to be there in order for it to remain there. So here's the spiritual reality this morning. You may not feel it. You may not see it, the wrath of God. But it doesn't mean that it isn't there in a spiritual sense. And without gospel change, God's wrath will stay and be directed towards every one of us. And without gospel change, and here's the most sobering part this morning, without gospel change, you will certainly experience the totality of God's wrath one day in his judgment. So, friends, left to ourselves, we are far more desperate than we ever thought. Spiritually speaking, we are spiritually dead. We are morally bankrupt and relationally orphaned before God. And that's incredibly bad news. It's incredibly bad news, and the reality is there should actually be a little bit of friction in your hearts right now. There should be a little bit of friction in my heart this morning. If if you're feeling a little bit of weight hearing these truths, I want you to know that if that's the case, the scriptures are doing what they're meant to do. but don't stay there. You don't have to stay there. If you're hearing the bad news and you're sensing a gravity and the weight of what the bad news rings on your life, then you are primed to appreciate the good news. See, good news can only be deemed good if we appreciate the gravity of the bad. So yes, we are indeed far more desperate than we ever thought. But see a second truth of our gospel identity this morning. God is far more gracious than we could ever imagine. He is far more gracious than we could ever imagine you make your way down through this chapter after establishing the spiritual state of human beings in verses one through three, Paul writes the contrast of contrasts. Two words that form the single most important phrase in all of human language. Here's the bad news. But God. But God, there's the beginning of the good news. The good news answer to our bad news spiritual state begins not with you. It begins not with us. It begins with God, if there is ever any hope to overcome the spiritually dead, morally bankrupt, relationally orphaned existence we know, then the remedy must begin with. God, and Paul says it does. Very quickly, I want to walk through verses four through seven to show you how in God's response to our spiritual plight, he shows himself to be far more gracious than we could ever imagine. Number one, just as I've been alluding to, see his initiative. If we are to ever have hope of being right with our maker, God would have to initiate with us. He would have to Chase after us. For, for we've already seen in Romans 3 that we would never chase after him. There's no one who seeks after God, Romans 3 says. There is no human being of his or her own volition who has ever woken up on the, in the morning to say, Behold, I thinketh I'm spiritually dead. Might I seeketh after God today in order to findeth new life? No, the Bible says no man, no woman does that. And so just stop today just for a moment and marvel at the truth that God's gospel Begins and ends in that matter with God's initiative to chase after you. Secondly, see his mercy. Verse 4 says that God was motivated by his rich mercy for you, meaning that God doesn't just write you off, but instead refrains from giving you what you ultimately deserve. Aren't you thankful this morning that God is rich in mercy towards you? Aren't you thankful this morning through all of your ignorance and through all of your disobedience towards, the th- towards God that he didn't just write you off and throw you in the trash heap or just leave you lying there spiritually dead on the shore, the seashore of the ocean of sin? No, his mercy, his merciful towards you. See his mercy. Third, see his love. See his love. Verse four also says that God was motivated by his great love towards you. And God's love is far more than a feeling. I think there's an 80s rock song about that too, but I'll stop being cultural observer today. God's love is more than a feeling. It's predicated upon knowing and doing what is best for us. And, And if you were here last Sunday, you will remember that we laid down the truth that God is ultimately what is best for us and he knows that. So rather than leaving again our spiritually dead carcasses washed up on the seashore of sin, his merciful love motivated him to initiate a way to bring us back to him. See his initiative, see his mercy, see his love, see his grace. Three times in this passage... Paul says that God initiated with us out of his abundant grace. Verse five, by grace you have been saved. Verse seven, the riches of his grace and kindness were toward us. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us meaning that there is nothing that you could ever do to deserve it. There is no work, he says in verse 9, you could ever do to earn it. God's grace is his free gift. His entire disposition towards you is his free gift toward you. Now, this runs absolutely contrary to the human psyche. Everything in us says, if I want it, I must work for it, or if I get it, I must deserve it in many ways. And so our natural bent is to try to work our way up to God. Simply turn over a new leaf perform some good works you see in our minds left to ourselves in response to our sin we're tempted to want to pay God back somehow to try to earn his love to earn his salvation but friend hear this truth this morning and I'm saying this categorically I'm saying this definitively there is not a single verse in all of the Bible that states that God is looking for you to do anything to earn your way back to him. Not a single verse in the entire scriptures says that you can pay God back. And this is one of those truths, honestly, that sobers me as a pastor because written into our american western ethic spiritually speaking is a spiritual mentality that doesn't exist at all in the christian scriptures you cannot pay him back you cannot earn what he would give to you and so might i say this lovingly to you today stop trying Stop trying to earn something that God gives freely. Stop trying to pay a debt back that you could never begin to pay, the Bible says. This morning, instead, turn your eyes upward to God and His grace. The entire salvation enterprise that God offers to us. Look at verse 7. Look at the ultimate motivation. Verse 7 says, God did all of this so that, verse 7 says, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. every single thing that God accomplishes for you, every single thing that God gives to you and does for you, he says it is ultimately so that it might demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his free gift towards you. And how does he do that? Through Christ Jesus. And so lastly, see his son. See his initiative, see his mercy, see his love, see his grace, and lastly, see his son. God accomplished everything needed to undo your dead spiritual state through his perfect son, Jesus Christ. This is such a value here at Mill City Church. Everything that we have, everything that we can enjoy, everything that is waiting for us On the other side in heaven, it is all owing to his son, Jesus Christ. If you're around our church for any length of time, you will hear me or one of us saying something along these lines. Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life that you were required to live, died the punishing death that you should have died, and rose from the dead so that now anyone who places faith and trust in him will receive new spiritual life and all the spiritual blessings God promises through him. God reverses the human spiritual state. And he does it completely in totality through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, too often we too quickly jump to the end of the story without ever considering the complexities and the contours of the gravity of our spiritual plight and the intricacies of the gospel that God extends to us. We too quickly just simply look for forgiveness or look for a ticket to heaven when we die and we fail to consider why Jesus had to come in the first place. But we would do ourselves well this morning to remember that we are far more desperate than we ever thought. But praise God that He is far more gracious than we could ever imagine. And I want you to see one more key foundation of our gospel identity. Salvation is far more transformative than we usually realize. Salvation is far more transformative than we usually realize realize I grew up from 14 years old onward um, throughout my middle school and high school tenure uh, in, in a pretty traditional conservative Southern Baptist Church. And I'm thankful for that church because it's the church where I heard the gospel. And I'm not sure that it's the church's fault. Perhaps it's was my own obstinacy or or failure to grapple with spiritual things. But my observation through the years in a lot of gospel preaching churches is the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply reduced down to what it gives us when we die. And even when we share the gospel so often, it is predicated upon where do you want to go when you die? Do you want to spend eternity in heaven or hell? And when we and I not, one, I don't for a moment want to suggest that that doesn't matter. It's the hope of the gospel. But when we focus inordinately just on the eternal reward of the gospel, what we often miss is the transformation. That the New Testament writer says that the gospel rings in our hearts and lives. So what I want to show us as we get ready to close in just a few moments is how Paul points our attention to this transformation and then answering the question, what in the world does this have to do with identity? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at these last Three sub points here. How does the gospel transform us? Number one, God gives us a new life. Literally, a new life. Verses five and six, when we were dead in our trespasses through the gospel, God made us alive together with Christ. And then you go down to verse six, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this goes all the way back to the beginning of our worship time this morning. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has so many bridges to your own spiritual life. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead so that now through his gospel work, he can be a resurrecting God and he raises each of us from the dead. You see, God's not just tweaking us. God's not just helping us be a better person. Coming to the gospel and placing faith in Jesus is not simply adding a spiritual dimension to your life. No, see, before lost in our sins, the Bible says we were dead carcasses on the seashore. And through faith in the gospel, Jesus comes and literally breathes spiritual life into us. It's why 2 Corinthians 5 says that if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. Behold, the the old has gone away and behold, the new has come. God literally gives us a new life. And so since he has given us a new life and that old life is gone, the gospel now becomes the durable core through which my entire identity is defined. The gospel of Jesus is now the grounds of my identity. The gospel of of Jesus is now who I really am at the core of who I am. God gives us a new life. Secondly, God gives us a new purpose. You see, we were once spiritually dead, but now we are spiritually alive. See, before we were morally bankrupt, but now we have a new purpose. Now I want you to see a contrast here. Verse nine, he says that this whole salvation enterprise is not a result of works so that no one may boast. But then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, before the gospel, we are so primed and so tempted to buy into the notion that I do good works in order to get to God. Paul rebuffs that. He says, no, that's not how you get to God. The gospel is how you get to God. And when you get to God through the gospel, the gospel is now going to produce in and through you what? Good works. Spiritually dead people can't do good works in God's eyes. But spiritually alive people through Jesus Christ can do good works. Why? Not because they come from us, but because Jesus through his gospel does them in and through me. He's literally creating a new man. He's literally creating a new woman. The verbiage here, he says, For we are his workmanship. The Greek word is we are his poema, his poem. In other words, we are his masterpiece that he is forming and chiseling and painting so that when we walk through this world, we are a visual reminder of the beautiful artistic genius of our saving creator. That's a new purpose for living. John Piper illustrates it this way. He says that God created us for this To live our lives in a way that makes him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that he really is. When you go to an art gallery, friends, and you look at a beautiful painting or even a room full of beautiful paintings, we don't necessarily think of it like this, but this is what those paintings are doing. Those paintings are fulfilling their created purpose by the artist. The painting, even though it is an inanimate object, is displaying the glory of its creator. The painting is displaying the artistic genius of the artist which painted it. And Paul tells us that through the work of the gospel as the gospel changes transforms human beings lives as they place faith in Jesus we are a walking gallery this morning for those who are in Christ Jesus this morning this is a gallery that is glorifying and pointing the world's attention to the greatness and the beauty of God's genius So we were once spiritually dead, the gospel gives us new life. We were once spiritually, morally bankrupt, but now we have a new moral purpose. Thirdly, we were once spiritually orphaned, but now, through the gospel, God gives us a new family. You see, we were once spiritual orphans, children of wrath, is what Ephesians 2 says, but through the gospel, Jesus actually says in John 1 God gives us the right to be called children of God. And now, as children of God, He adopts us into His family, where He now places us in these little local churches, just like this one. And He gives us a new spiritual family where we belong. And we belong not because anyone here says we belong. We belong because the gospel says we belong. And I'm going to talk about this more next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, other than to say here in this text, in this passage, remember, the New Testament epistles were not written to individuals. They were written to faith families. They were written in the context of local churches. And what this reminds us is that our faith in Jesus Is not a solo enterprise. It's not an individualistic experience. Does God save individuals? Absolutely, He does. But He saves individuals not only to Himself, but also to His people. Thereby, not only do we get a new identity, but we also get a new family. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next Sunday. Let's end where we started this morning. We as a people are obsessed with identity, rightly so, because we want to know who we really are and what it is or who it is who defines who we really are. The world tells us that there are a lot of different ways that we might define ourselves or define who we really are. What we want you to know here at Mill City is that we believe the gospel defines who you really are. And we believe it is the gospel that actually helps us understand and appropriate all the myriad of other categories in our lives. And so, our response this morning. For the unbeliever, I would implore you today to receive God's gift. We read in the text today that God's salvation is a gift of his grace that he invites you to receive You don't get it by acclamation. You don't get it just because you're a human being. You get it through repentance and faith. And we here at Mill City would love to have conversation with you to help you know a little bit more of what that means. And so if you're an unbeliever in the room today, I want to implore you to take those first steps to receive God's gift. And if you are a believer in this room, I want to encourage you to rejoice over the gift that God has already given to you. One of the reasons why we oftentimes can forget the significance of what God has done in our lives is for the simple reason that we fail to remind ourselves. And brothers and sisters, I pray this morning that through this message, through the text of God's scripture itself, that he has reminded you the significance of what Jesus has done in your heart Through his gospel. To my brother. To my sister. There are many different stations of life. And many different categories and responsibilities. That you may have on planet earth. But if you are a believer today. If you are in Jesus today. There is only one. Core. One durable core. That can ever define who you are. And it is the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. Father. Father. May this be the collective testimony of our hearts today. And Lord, where there is incongruity between our hearts and what your text teaches us today, I pray that your spirit would bring resolution there. Lord, today we simply say thank you. Thank you for resuscitating us. Thank you for breathing new life into us. Thank you for giving us a new life, a new identity, a new purpose Adopting us into a new family. And Lord, I pray that at Mill City Church, that those truths will always be held dear. No matter who stands in this pulpit, whether our church is 150 people, whether our church is 1,500, I pray that the gospel of Jesus will always be our durable core. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.